Hey there, Michael here for another episode of The Strategy Report. I hope you've been enjoying listening to the show in 2019 as much as we've enjoyed making it. But before we dive into the Russian Grand Prix, we've got a small favour to ask. Beer Mogul Podcast is running another listener survey, and we'd love to get your feedback. We're trying to get a better idea of who's listening to the podcast, what you like about it, and what you want to hear more of in the future. It should only take you a couple of minutes, and to make it worth your while, at the end you can enter the draw to win a pair of motorsport-inspired socks from our friends at Heel Tread. I've got my pair, and I can tell you that not only are the designs great, but they're absolutely comfortable as well. So head over to the website at f1strategyreport.com and follow the link to fill in the survey. We'd love to hear from you, and there's a great pair of socks from Heel Tread up for grabs as well. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 2019 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Heeltread Motorsport Socks. Go to heeltread.com. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 16, the Russian Grand Prix. Ferrari had the fastest car in Sochi, a Ferrari qualified on pole, and Ferrari led the race 1-2 at the start. But in the shadow of another Team Orders controversy, Ferrari managed to lose the race to Mercedes. Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas were the beneficiaries when Sebastian Vettel's car stopped halfway through the race, leaving Charles Leclerc to finish third in a substantial salvage job for the Silver Arrows. To discuss how the slower car won the race, and otherwise to speculate wildly, I'm joined by the father of all your favourite F1 stats, Sean Kelly. Sean, how are you doing? I am very tired, Mike. It's uh, <laughs> been a long day over here uh, trying to do the Russian Grand Prix from the US West Coast, uh, where the race started at 10 past four in the morning here. It is now... <laughs> Where are we now? Uh, 20 to 11 at night, but I stayed up just for you. Absolutely trooper. There's no other way to describe it. Such a weird time zone, the Russian Grand Prix, in the middle of, of nowhere in particular. No one seems especially happy with the time it was run, unless you're on the east coast of Australia, I must say, where I'm often watching the race from a very pleasant nine o'clock. Bed before midnight, what more can you ask for on a Sunday night? Well, and we even got a good race. I've got to say, not a lot of optimism heading into Russia generally. It's a bit of a... Well, much like the time zone, a bit of a what of it kind of circuit, but an interesting race. And we've got to say off the back of Singapore to have Ferrari genuinely in the mix now, would you say, makes this quite an interesting end to the season? Yeah, I think before we went into Belgium, we all thought um, that Ferrari's pace was derived from, uh, you know, long flat out circuits, you know, long flat out uh, sections like Montreal. We saw how good Ferrari were in Montreal and we knew that going into Spa and Monza, this was going to be Ferrari's big chance uh, to break their duck for the year, which of course they did. But we thought, okay, once we get to Singapore and maybe the remainder of the tracks, it's not going to be such an easy thing. To our great surprise, to our pleasant surprise, that was it was not as predictable as that. And Ferrari actually underlined their pace to the point where we have to say, well, where was this at the start of the season? They were so quick in pre-season, and then it all went out the window in Melbourne, like it has, like it traditionally does for them. It seems uh, Mercedes, even though they won in Melbourne a couple of times in recent times, it was always Mercedes with a better car, um, but they tripped over themselves on strategy. Um, so yeah, where, you know, where was this pace early in the season? I like to think we got to the mid-season break and they, you know, teared down the car to rebuild it ahead of the second season and found some of those sandbags they typically leave in there during pre-season testing remove them and now we've got the real Ferrari but there was a big update in Singapore and of course we talked last week naturally about well what a shock the Singapore Grand Prix win was on this podcast but Russia I guess is a step towards validating that those aero upgrades they brought in Singapore were 
I guess, universally or globally more useful for them as they sought to cure what I guess can be boiled down to a kind of weak front end. And I mean, we can talk about a little bit later how that benefits Sebastian Vettel now that that's stepped up a little bit. But it does feel like now we've got this circuit, for example, which was, I guess, half a street circuit in the style of Singapore and then more flat out. So a bit of a compromise. And then we've got Suzuka coming up, of course, which is all about downforce and and aerodynamic performance. This next, this race and the next race really will validate that step forward, I suppose. It shall. And I I would say Russia actually, you know, Russia lends itself more to the Spa and Monza type circuits in that it has that very long uh, flat out section uh, from the start line all the way down to turn two. And that was certainly reflected in the sector times from qualifying. If you looked uh, at the best sector times in qualifying, Ferrari one and two in that sector, uh, nearly half a second quicker in that one sector than Mercedes, which would then, they would then claw it back in the remainder of the racetrack. They're not going to have perhaps that luxury in a place like Suzuka, which is, as you mentioned, is so dependent on the conservation of momentum. Um, much more, It's very similar to Silverstone in that regard. Um, and of course, um, Mercedes did rather well at Silverstone. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's probably, I hesitate to say probably, because we said that in Singapore <laughs> and we got a surprise. But let's just say the you'll get longer odds of it uh, carrying on in Suzuka. But certainly they, they took, they, they seem to be taking full advantage of what was uh, a track made for them in Sochi or more tailored towards them. And then, you know, as a great man once said, this is why we run the races. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be predictable heading towards a Ferrari 1-2, and it ended up being a completely different team that finished 1-2. Certainly it was leading up into qualifying, and even through qualifying itself, it seemed as though Ferrari did have this edge fairly comfortably, especially on the soft tyre. And we had the middle of Pirelli's range here, C2, C3, and C4 for those playing along at home. It's hard to say, uh, those tyre compounds. Uh, and that tends to be the way Ferrari works, isn't it? The softer the tyre, the, the better they seem to be able to, to get it working. But inversely, we did see Mercedes struggling a little bit with, with operating these tyres on what is a, a very smooth surface. And they just seem to lack that kind of bite and pace we normally expect to see, at least across the long run, certainly on the soft tyre. Although I guess this is where we started to see the path towards their race strategy emerge because on the medium tie, it seemed like they had a little bit more going for them. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something we've seen at other races this year. Um, I'm just uh, referring to my notes that I circulated among the broadcasters on Friday. Let me see if I can read you verbatim what I said and see if uh, <laughs> see if I'm uh, Nostradamus or not here. Uh, yes, here's fun. The preliminary findings suggest that Valtteri Bottas will again outpace Hamilton on a track that is arguably his best in F1. <laughs> but Bottas, Leclerc and Verstappen all ran softs at the end of this session and it was Leclerc who came out on top when averaging the lap times. So, there it was in black and white. Um, when digging down into the numbers, Leclerc was bossing it on the soft tyre. Mm-hmm. Now, um, how that translated to the medium tyre... Um, it was it was tough to tell because we didn't get a, a very good sample set. But certainly, on the short amount of laps they ran on the medium, the Mercedes looked a lot stronger than the Ferrari on the medium tyre, um, which probably partially explained their decision to qualify on the medium tyre. One of the other key factors of this circuit that played into that decision on the medium tyre, or the, their ability to qualify in Q2 in that medium tyre, rather, is that this circuit is really... It's almost like a test circuit in the sense that everything's very smooth, everything is very flat. It almost to a degree takes 
the variable of the the circuit surface itself out of course by there being no variables it becomes kind of like a variable doesn't it because for some cars much more difficult to use it but it meant that the gap between the compounds was not so great here that also later on as we'll talk about played into the fact that the undercut and the overcut was actually quite difficult here because there wasn't a lot of performance differentiation but to talk about that q2 in particular were you surprised that Ferrari didn't think about cutting off that avenue for Mercedes by using the set of mediums in that session. I was a little bit surprised. Yeah, I mean, it it always seems like that if you have the capability to get away with using the harder available compounds of a weekend in Q2, it always seems like that it would be logical to try and do that because uh, obviously the, the softest compound is liable to wear out first. In this case, I think Mercedes took took the medium um which seemed like a a solid strategy call on saturday but because we have low deg as you mentioned because this the this, this surface is so smooth um and there's not a lot of really high loading corners uh you know it's not like catalonia for instance where you've got a succession of corners that wear the tires out the soft tire was able to hang in there a lot more now this is not exactly unprecedented there was quite a wealth of knowledge on that in the past, and in fact, if you dig down to, towards Sochi's history, um, prior to this year, no one had ever finished in the top four in Sochi when they'd made more than one pit stop. So we knew from the past that th- there was no chance that, or very little chance that somebody was going to uh, do it on a, in a more sprinting type way. You know, the tire is always going to last. In 2014 and 2016, we saw drivers pit at the end of the first lap and do the rest of the race on a single set of tires. So longevity was always going to be there um with that in mind um it could be that ferrari also took the soft tire because they wanted to maximize their start and knowing that ferrari's big strength was the run down to turn two coupled with the fact that track position um is pretty important on this racetrack you wouldn't think it would be with that long run but once you uh, if you were out of drs range you've got it you know you're, you're set um if they, if they start on the soft tyre, they knew they could maximise their run down to the well, the second corner, as it is officially, the first corner in all for all intents and purposes. Um, and certainly, you know, we saw every bit of that because the Mercedes starting uh, on the medium compound tyres were, were even gobbled up by the McLarens, whereas the Ferraris were out front 1-2 early on. Um, and then, you know, track possessions nine-tenths of the law. Once they've got track position... They can control the race. Unfortunately for them, of course, the control, uh, the power struggle became an internal one as opposed to battling other teams. They found that the two drivers were in direct conflict with each other. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, I think, is exactly what Sebastian Vettel must have been thinking at the early part of this race. We will get back to Mercedes a little bit later on and to talk about how that medium compound tyre did eventually, even if luck was involved, swing the race back towards them. But of course, the main draw for the first half of this race was Ferrari. They had the fastest car in qualifying, obviously. Charles Leclerc got it on pole by four-tenths of a second, and, and Sebastian Vettel had started third. Third for Vettel, though, despite him looking a little bit rattled after qualifying, ended up being the perfect position because you're right behind the leader. You're on the clean side of the grid, and he got a beautiful slipstream down to turn what two, as you said, really, the, the second turn, the first braking zone. And Ferrari had already thought about all of this, hadn't they? Because there's the spectre of this agreement that they had. And we love a good pre-race agreement in Formula 1, I think, throughout the course of history. Did not go the way they'd planned, though, because 
with Vettel in the lead, he wasn't so willing to give it up to Leclerc as apparently they'd agreed to do. And there, of course, like all debates, seem to be two sides. Those who say, well, of course, he should have honoured straight up this agreement. But the arguments he was making, I guess, did stack up, didn't they? First of all, that he seemed faster than Leclerc, and then, of course, that Hamilton was not so far behind. Well, yes, and Vettel, I would sure, I'm sure, must have known that uh, two years ago, Valtteri Bottas started third on the grid and led into turn two on this racetrack and won the race. So he must have known, starting on the soft tyre um, with uh, Hamilton on the front row on the medium tyre, that he was going to be a sitting duck. Ferrari had much more straight line speed. So at some point on Saturday afternoon, the team has gone, look, you're going to get past Hamilton. <laughs> the only guy in front of you is going to be the other Ferrari. At that point, you're going to have this massive slipstream. What we don't want you doing, Charles, is move, cutting across on Vettel, bumping his front wing off, or worse still, bumping both of you off. Um, not bumping you off as in terms of you know shooting each other. <laughs> I don't mean that kind of bumping off. Um, yes, uh, unfortunate choice of terms. Though. Um, it's not that bad yet in Ferrari. Anyway. <laughs> not, it's not that bad yet. It might get there, but it's not that bad yet. Um, don't want it to turn into the Godfather. Um, yes, it, they must have said, look, there's a, there's a very high probability not possibility, but probability that you guys are going to be the guys battling for the lead into turn two. Uh, therefore, you're going to have to come up with some uh, arrangement here. Charles, if you play, you know, play a straight bat, you know, don't, uh, don't try and get in Sebastian's way. Uh, and then we'll have it made into turn two. We won't have any outside interference from the Mercedes guys. And then after that, we can do the old switcheroo and then, you know, all is well. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Um, in reality, of course, Sebastian's got a little bit of previous <laughs> when it comes to, let's say, misunderstanding <laughs> team instructions. Should we call it that? <laughs> I'm sure as an Australian, you need a no introduction <laughs> to the whole uh, multi-21 situation. There's a commemorative coin all about it, I'm sure, somewhere. Yes, <laughs> yes. So once Vettel got the lead, uh, he thought, actually, I kind of like it out here. It's kind of cool being up front. Uh, not so keen on giving it all up. Um, and he was right. I mean, he was. Uh, there was a point there where he was four seconds up the road. And you must say that, like, if, he, if Leclerc wants the lead, come and take it. Where is he? You know, um, if Vettel's the faster Ferrari, then why does he have to uh, cede position to Leclerc? Now, I do understand that there is a championship implication here. Because going into the race, uh, Leclerc was tied. It, we, he was third in the world championship, but he was actually tied on points with Max Verstappen. So Leclerc is battling to get third in the championship. And going into the race, he was only 31 points behind Botas. So he knew that, let's say Leclerc wins Vettel second. Botas can only be third at that point. So you've got a minimum 10 points on Botas. You could get second in the world championship. So there was that implication as well. Um, so on that basis, uh, you know, it would have been easy to say, hey, look, we want Charles to get second in the World Championship. Vettel would then have responded, hang on a minute, I'm only six points behind Leclerc myself. What about me? Why? How come I'm not, you know, he's flavor of the month all of a sudden. Everyone's <laughs> forgotten about me. And by the way, I'm four seconds in the lead. Um, so I can, I can see the arguments on both sides. Um, but beyond that, I don't like to... I don't like to assign blame because I don't know. I wasn't in the meeting, so I don't know what was agreed or not agreed. And we should be very careful about assigning blame based upon a conversation that we never heard. We had that, you know, 
Imola was always, of course, the 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 place where we had those disagreements in the past. Think of Gilles Villeneuve and Didier Peroni in '82, um, or um, more uh, for a more long-term feud, Imola '89, when the race was red flagged and restarted, and uh, Alan Prost took the lead off the restart, and Senna passed him into the Tosa hairpin on the first lap. But Prost had said, I thought we had an agreement that whoever uh, led uh, through Tamburello uh, would lead from there on. Uh, to which Senna said, oh, that only applied to the first start. Uh, this is the restart. No, it's a whole different, whole different thing now. Sorry. Um, and that's the, the feud was born that day. So um, it will be interesting. I, you know, nothing puts bombs on seats in Formula One like a good bit of scandal. <laughs> so well, if these two are start, if these two are going to start getting at each other, it's uh, it's good for business. Looking at it from Leclerc's perspective, aside from whatever the agreement may have been, I thought it was really interesting and ties in very well to the idea, uh, very well demonstrated idea that Charles Leclerc is really learning every race. Every race, he's improving some little aspect of his performance that he was very keen on team radio to first of all not lose his cool as he himself accused himself of doing in Singapore uh, and second to really emphasize that he was doing the good work of the team he was playing the team game and during that time as you mentioned Sebastian Vettel was able to to move further up the road and Hamilton was if only marginally able to close towards Charles Leclerc never enough to really threaten to undercut but enough to threatened that he might later threaten to undercut if we could say so much do you think and of course we're deep into what if territory because ultimately it came to nothing by the time we got to halfway through the race and Sebastian Vettel's cars bailed on him but do you think that that at that point in the race was the wise thing for Leclerc to do was it do you think ultimately this would have come down to a team decision to put Leclerc into the lead or would you prefer to have seen him try to chase up behind Vettel or was he simply not fast enough as perhaps a third option um I, I'd be lying if I said <laughs> I knew the a bona fide answer to that if I, if I look at the the lap times from both of them throughout the first stint when they were in direct comparison they're almost identical you know uh, Sebastian is edging out a tenth here a tenth there um and there isn't much uh, change in that until the laps immediately before Leclerc pitted when Vettel stepped his pace up and increased the gap um through four seconds then Leclerc pits um and and starts to get a, a noticeable undercut he was a second a lap he was a second a lap faster um on his first lap flying lap after his pit stop um given that the gap was 4.4 seconds you could see obviously okay this undercut is going to work out quite well for him uh so when Vettel pitted he came out behind uh Leclerc and then of course almost instantly retired <laughs> so we don't know what what would have become of that situation whether Leclerc would have taken too much out of that tire from trying to get that undercut we we that's data that's lost to us because the the VSC came out and then ultimately the safety car and then it's further complicated by the fact that okay Mercedes ended up uh, pitting under the VSC and getting the lead um and then we get of course the, the rather shambolic situation where Ferrari didn't decide mm. what they wanted to do when the safety car itself came out and second place became third place instead. Now, as we do move towards that pit stop window, as you said, Charles Leclerc, lap 22, was when he came into the pits when he started to say that his tyres, particularly his rear left tyre, was starting to expire. Uh, four seconds, more or less, was the gap, as you said. And conveniently enough, it was four laps later uh, that, that Sebastian Vettel was called in for his own stop. 
Ferrari insists this was more precautionary than anything else, despite the, the fact that Vettel said his tyres as well were, were starting to feel quite warm. They said it was, ironically enough, considering what happened afterwards, to guard against a safety car. It is difficult, though, to feel as though this wasn't the team really taking into its own hands, if you like, the, the order of the leading drivers, because really there didn't seem to be that much performance logic to keeping Vettel out at that point, given he was starting to lose time to Hamilton. Yes, uh, and uh, as as much of that was Hamilton stepping up the pace as it was Vettel losing the pace. Um, if you look at the, the laps following Leclerc's pit stop on lap 22, on the lap before Leclerc pitted, Vettel had put in a 138.9. Um and then the next lap, it was a 139.2. And then uh, there, was a, no, there was another 139 in there. At the same time as that's happening, Vettel's in the 139 range. Hamilton suddenly, after Leclerc pits, drops his pace down to 138.3. And then 138.2. And then 138.3. And then 138.4. So all of a sudden, Hamilton is uh, you know, stepping the pace up in his pursuit of, of Vettel. Um, I, at that point, I was starting to wonder, had Mercedes sold them all a dummy in terms of tyre degradation? Were they just bluffing on tyre deg and saying, oh, we've got wear, this, that and the other, and waiting for a Ferrari to pit? And then they were just going to unleash this huge uh, overcut situation and they were going to win the race that way. Uh, in the end, we didn't see that because, of course, Vettel's car broke down. And uh, that triggered all the subsequent events that basically threw out you know, the we ended up with a we ended up with a race of two halves, which which you know, need the one first half didn't bear resemblance to the second half, either strategically or in a sporting sense. Um and certainly Leclerc's times indicated that he well, he was gonna be comfortable he was gonna be comfortable in the lead whenever all these guys pitted. But uh, that's uncharted territory. We didn't see, we didn't run far enough on a Friday to, to answer that question, and we didn't run far enough in the race without a safety car to answer that question either. So many interesting what ifs at that point. It's exactly right. I think for for what it's worth, anyway, Lewis Hamilton suggested that Ferrari was on the better strategy, and we know, of course, that this was essentially a roll of the dice for Mercedes, wasn't it? They didn't feel like the car was quite a match for Ferrari after Friday practice, so may as well do something different, which is what they did. And while we can say that that luck really played a part here, because once, as we've covered, Sebastian Vettel made his stop on lap 26, lost the lead to Charles Leclerc and almost immediately retired with an MGUK problem, with an electrical problem, uh, the the safety car subsequently was triggered and, and the Mercedes drivers were able to make a very cheap pit stop. That's luck, of course, but starting on the medium tire is exactly... What brings that kind of flexibility, isn't it? So there also must be credit paid to Mercedes in this situation for for having the strategy on a track that had before this race a 60% safety car chance of having that opportunity to take advantage of it. Yes, although I would say that the 60% um, number, speaking as a statistician now, is a flawed number with which to work. And the reason is, is because in the history of the Russian Grand Prix at Sochi, we'd had four safety car periods in the past, but three of them had come on the first lap. So that wouldn't factor into your strategy making, typically. Um, the only one other one we'd had was in 2015 when Grosjean crashed it heavily at turn three. That was a very memorable accident that happened in, when we saw the slow motion replay of him binning it and bits coming off the car in all directions. Um, so it would be fair to say that you wouldn't expect a safety car in the phase of the race where you're likely to pit. Um, personally, I, I think... Um, Lewis is right. Ferrari had the better strategy and Ferrari just got tripped up. It was 
it was all going well until suddenly it wasn't. It, <laughs> it was, you know, Leclerc's race was undone by Vettel's retirement. So the whole thing starts and ends with Ferrari. You know, that Ferrari had the race in their hands and then it was like Keystone Cops, you know, as <laughs> things started to go wrong for them, which is a shame. I mean, they didn't, I don't think they... The, the the only thing they did the only thing they did that I thought was genuinely a mistake was during the safety car period yes. when they dilly dallied on whether or not to stop Leclerc. This was the strange and potentially decisive, depending on how you want to analyze the the flow on permutations from from stopping or not stopping part of the race. Because when the safety car came out, triggered for George Russell's um, somewhat mysterious crash when he he locked up a brake essentially and and hit the barrier, triggering a safety car. Ferrari did not stop immediately. Now, the gap from Charles Leclerc at that point in second place to Valtteri Bottas behind him in third was around 12 seconds. Maybe not quite enough to make a safety car stop, but certainly enough to try. But it wasn't until the end of the following lap that they brought him in for that set of soft tyres, throwing away second place for third, but ultimately gambling on what might have turned out to be an ideal situation of victory with those tyres. Why was it that they waited so long? Is there any hint? Is there any clue? Was it some gamesmanship with Mercedes, perhaps? Because otherwise it doesn't make a lot of sense to wait until the field is bunched up to make that stop. No, it doesn't. I I think they must have looked at the situation and thought, okay, Leclerc's on mediums, Hamilton's on softs. In that situation, you would normally think the guy on the medium tyre is going to have the race come to him at the end. Um, In... In Sochi's terms, with such with such low deg, that soft tire is probably not going to go away quite as badly as it would at another racetrack. So they probably umdenard about that. But then they thought, well, Botas might get Leclerc for second at some point as well on that faster tire. What if we bring in Leclerc, put the soft tire on, drop behind Botas, and given our pace in the first part of the race, we could end up passing both of these Mercedes and win the race. It's important to remember at this stage that for, for Leclerc and Ferrari, the championship is essentially gone. So, you know, racing for a safe second place, not really what Scuderia Ferrari is about. So with the championship not on the line, it was worth the risk of saying, hey, look, we're going to be second. We're not going to pass Lewis. Who cares? Why don't we go for a more aggressive strategy? And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we're third. Who cares? Like, you know. If we don't win the race, whether you're second or third, no one remembers. So, and the, and of course, the race was already going away from them at that point because Vettel was out of the race. So Leclerc didn't have anybody to, you know, to 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 work with or to act as a spoiler. So it was it was a one man band by that point. Um, just a clarification on the Russell retirement, by the way. I I haven't heard. I've read I've read his quotes that he had a mechanical failure. He didn't elaborate. Um, I strongly suspect that having just come out of the pits, I think one of the front tires might not have been attached correctly. Uh-huh. Because if you watch the re- if you watch the replay of the accident, when he goes into the barrier, the right rear tire lifts off the ground momentarily, which implies that one of the front tires has come off. Yes, right. Um, so I suspect that's I suspect that's what happened. In mitigation, I didn't spot the 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 rear the right rear wheel lifting on Russell's car until I watched the race back the second time. So first time around, it seemed like a brake failure. The second time around, I spotted that the the right rear wheel is lifting when he goes into the barrier, implying that something's come off the front. Uh, And that would tally with a front wheel not being secure or something going wrong with the axle. And, and, And of course, I don't have proof but I am offering that as a theory. Well, in this race, it's all about theories, really, considering how many what-ifs we've had to analyse over the course of the Grand Prix. To wrap up, though, the battle at the front, 
Charles Leclerc came out third, had those soft tyres. Uh, in total, they were maybe two laps younger uh, than those uh, equipped on the Mercedes cars. It was all about getting past, of course, Bottas first of all. And I guess to go back to some of the notes you'd made previously, albeit after Friday practice, but a historical note nonetheless, this is a track that Bottas does actually do fairly well on, despite the fact he was shaded by Lewis Hamilton. In fact, he has a history of really strong defences here. That's how his first win came. And I mean, of course, Ferrari had nothing to lose. There's no reason for them not to gamble uh, on winning the race by dropping to third. But I guess if you were on Bottas's camp, you should have been relatively confident that you were going to keep that second place. Yes, I, I would say in in Sochi especially, you always feel pretty good about track position if you're running near the front. Uh, it's a little bit different in, in what we might call the Class B Championship, where the there's a lot of teams, there's four or five teams that are very, very close to each other in terms of performance. Um, but up here in the, in the big league, it seems that uh, it's 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 more difficult to make passes for the lead on this racetrack than it is to make passes for tenth place. Uh, sadly, but yes, Botas is a bit of a has been a bit of a ringer around Sochi down the years. He'd never actually qualified outside the top four in Sochi in his career, um, which I think is extraordinary, given that obviously for the first few years he was uh, with Williams. But uh, he still never was. He was on the front row in 2016, as recently as 2016 in a Williams. Um, and would have had, he would have had, you know, he lost a podium in 2015 when he was Raikkonen on the final lap. <laughs> um, so he, he always had good form on, on this racetrack. And I was surprised, actually, that he did not offer as much, um, as much of a challenge to Lewis this weekend uh, as he has in previous years. Because it was just one of those racetracks where, uh, you know, every, every great driver has a couple of racetracks where they don't perform quite as well as you might think. For Michael Schumacher, it was always the A1 ring, now the Red Bull ring. Now, people will look at his record and say, well, hang on a minute, he won there several times. Yes, he did, but Schumacher won several times at every racetrack, <laughs> just as Lewis has won several times at every racetrack. Putting it into context, you know, Schumacher always had a hard time. He always had the, the stiffest competition he ever got from Rubens Barrichello always seemed to be at the A1 ring putting aside the whole 2002 mm-hmm. contrived finish thing. And same here with Botas at Sochi. It was always uh, one of his racetracks. And to see him qualify uh, six-tenths off Lewis, um, it had to have been a phenomenal lap from Lewis to get on the front row because I don't think any of us really saw Mercedes splitting the Ferraris. Um, and it translated into game day, uh, simply. Botas never looked, uh, you know, can you can you recall a point in the race where you thought, oh, Botas might get Hamilton here? I don't recall it happening no and that's the order they finished in Hamilton Bottas Charles Leclerc Max Verstappen quite a, a quiet race for Red Bull Racing they didn't really translate what looked like pretty promising pace on Friday actually relatively good pace enough for them to to make them wonder whether they should have taken their engine penalties at this race didn't transpire in the Grand Prix itself uh, but it was good enough for Alex Elbon to put in quite a an impressive drive considering the the pretty average weekend he had up to that point from the pit lane uh, up to fifth behind Max Verstappen, he took advantage of the safety car, mind you. But another kind of mysterious weekend, I suppose, for Red Bull Racing after they expected to do better in Singapore and didn't, came here. This should have likewise been an okay race for them. Didn't work out again. It's not actually that surprising to me that Red Bull were not as competitive in Sochi as we have seen recently. Uh, this was Verstappen's first ever top four finish in Sochi. He still never qualified in the top six on this racetrack. Now, partly that's due to engine penalties and what have you. Uh, certainly that was the case this weekend. 
but Red Bull have never really been a serious contender um, around this racetrack for 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 whatever reason. It just it seems that their car just doesn't really uh, doesn't really like this racetrack in a way that it tends to with Singapore, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be interested to see how it goes around Suzuka, which of course is another great momentum track. And Red Bull had a pretty good car at, at Silverstone. Um, yeah, Verstappen, of course, was hamstrung by the engine penalties. But even at the restart, um, you know, he didn't really offer any serious... There wasn't really a point where he thought, oh, mm-hmm. Max Verstappen suddenly in the mix. It was just more like, also ran. You know, he, in the background also is Max Verstappen. He is still in the race, folks. With Alex Albon, uh, he probably had the, the worst day of his Red Bull tenure <laughs> in qualifying when he crashed it in a manner that I tweeted immediately. I said... You know, that, that, that moment where you watch a, an accident happening and it, as it's happening, it reminds you of another accident that happened in, mm-hmm. in another Formula One race. And I said, and this is, this is one especially for your Australian listeners here, Mike. <laughs> Nigel Mansell, Adelaide 1989, when he spun out of that race in 89, it looked exactly the same as Alexander Albon's crash, folks. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably too young. <laughs> Check it out on YouTube. Google it. Do what you got to do. So it was that crash again. Anyway. Albon, to his credit, Alexander Albon has finished in the top six in every race that he's competed in for Red Bull. He's yet to get really anywhere near close to Max Verstappen in qualifying. Um, yeah, jury's still out. Uh, saying he finished in the top six in every race he's done for Red Bull sounds competent, but you've got to be more than competent with Red Bull. And it's easy to, it's easy to compare him to Gasly and say oh well yes he's done a much more he's done a more solid job than Gasly but Gasly's not the benchmark the benchmark is Verstappen or at least what you would think Ricardo would be doing mm. in that drive because if Daniel Ricardo was finishing in the top 6 you would look at him and say what's gone wrong Danny where's the pace gone you know we've I've seen you have a sniff of a podium lately what's going on so it, you know Albon has achieved the minimum that's required but he will need to do more than that for Red Bull to say, you know what, we'll give you 2020 as well. Another interesting uh, chapter. I'm very pleased we get to say that after the Russian Grand Prix, actually. I was for a time wondering whether or not we would be able to, but an interesting chapter in the 2019 championship, which does accelerate in its path towards Lewis Hamilton in surely the next two rounds. It was a pleasure to talk about it with you, Sean. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure, and I'm glad we managed to make some sense of the crazy Sochi world in which we lived in. That was Sean Kelly, renowned F1 stats man. The Strategy Report is powered by Heeltread Motorsport Socks. Go to heeltread.com and check out their range of designs inspired by iconic cars. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your socials. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and if you're looking for an alternative take on the Russian Grand Prix, have a search for Box of Neutrals in your podcast app of choice to hear Rob James and I discuss why bringing back a Ferrari V12 might not be such a good idea. I've been Michael Laminato. Look me up at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in a couple of weeks from Suzuka for the Japanese Grand Prix.